Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the time being, this show is still a one-person operation. And if you would like to support this show and its mission, its goals, its uh, attempt to make incredible programming for you, all about psychology, neuroscience, and everything in between when it comes to reasoning and decision-making and judgment and persuasion and conspiratorial thinking, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. Another way to support the show is just tell everybody about it. You can follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McCready and find all the past episodes at Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or YouAreNotSoSmart.com. I've got lots of announcements coming up. First of all, there's the book, How Minds Change, coming up later on in the year. Also, live shows are coming back. We're going to take the show on the road. There's a place in New York City called Caveat. And I'm partnering with them to bring you lots and lots of live shows there at their venue soon. In fact, August, I'm planning on having the first new live show in August of 2021. I'm also making a documentary series for Himalaya about the history of the idea and the etymology of the word genius, which includes creative genius, intelligence, and all sorts of other things. Look for that coming up in July. And you may have seen this on Twitter, Joe Hansen of It's Okay to Be Smart and I have been working all COVID long with the great James Burke to write a new connection series called The Knowledge Web. And it's ready to go and we are just looking for a good home for it. So if you have any way of helping us uh, find a streaming service that wants to be the home of the new connection series, just email me, tweet to me. We'll talk about it. That's coming up soon. We're talking to a couple different organizations right now, but we're still considering ourselves playing the field, as it were. Also, I've got so many interviews already done for future episodes. Uh, QAnon. We're going to have a big deep dive into QAnon coming up. I've got another episode coming up about jerks at work and how to deal with them. Another one about the intricacies of mathematics and all sorts of strange topologies that help us understand how minds work and so much more. Lots and lots and lots of new material coming your way, starting with this episode all about what happens when circumstances in life lead you to a slight change of plans. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 207. 
So I was riding in my car. I'm driving, and this Klansman was sitting in my passenger seat. And we got on the, on the topic of uh, crime. And he made the mention that uh, black people are born with a gene that makes them violent. And I said, look, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a drive-by or a carjacking. How do you explain that? This man did not hesitate one second. He answered me instantly. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. That's Daryl Davis, a blues musician. And yeah, you heard him right. He's driving in his car with a member of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. And he's sitting next to me all smug and secure, like, uh-huh, you see, you know, you have nothing to say. And I thought about it for a moment. Rather than attack him, just say, it's not true, it's not true. I said to him, I said, you know, white people have a gene within them that make them serial killers. And he said, why would you say that? I said, well, face it, name me three black serial killers. He thought about it. He couldn't name anybody. He couldn't do it. I rattled off Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, uh, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. And I said, son, you are a serial killer. And he said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your genus latent hasn't come out yet. He said, well, that's stupid. And I said, well, duh, <laughs> it is stupid. And he got very, very quiet. And I could tell that the gears in his head were spinning super fast, probably, you know, burning a hole in there. And then he, you know, a moment later, you know, he changed the subject. But within five months, this guy quit the Ku Klux Klan. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. But that clip you just heard of Daryl Davis talking about his work changing the minds of Ku Klux Klan members, encouraging them to think about their reasoning, their justifications, their attitudes, and their values, and how doing that can affect their beliefs, especially when it's done by a black man who has built an incredible rapport with someone in that organization. All of that comes from another podcast, one that just came out, hosted by Maya Shankar called A Slight Change of Plans. Maya and her team reached out to me a few weeks ago, noting that a lot of my recent episodes and a lot of my research into my upcoming book titled How Minds Change overlapped with Maya's work on this new show, which explores how various fascinating people have changed their minds. Often after something unexpected happened in the story of their lives. One of her guests, Megan Phelps Roper, was also recently a guest on this show, and Daryl Davis is one of her guests who I've long wanted to feature on this podcast and hopefully will one day, but there's already an episode all about his adventures changing people's minds. So, as podcasters do from time to time, Maya wondered if she could come on this podcast to promote her podcast. And seeing as our interests and obsessions and work and overall mission align so strongly, I said, 
absolutely. I would love to do that. Let's do it. And here's a little bit more from that episode with Daryl Davis. Daryl would play a gig at this bar, and he would invite clan members to watch him play. This is one of those things that makes Daryl so unusual. I mean, for me, a huge part of what makes someone who they are is their belief system. And so if we share the same taste in music, that's fine, that's great. But if I then find out they're a flagrant racist, that's going to fully eclipse everything else about them. So how does Daryl look past that? He says it's not like that. He wasn't looking past it. He wanted to learn from it. See, Daryl had spent his early childhood overseas in a school he describes as a United Nations for little kids. Race was always in the background. But when he moved back to the States when he was 10, he couldn't escape racism. And ever since then, he's been interested in why people hate. I had had an experience at the age of 10 where some racist people threw rocks and bottles at me during a parade in which I was the only Black participant. And never having had this happen to me before, I was perplexed as to why people were doing this. And when later my parents explained that it was racism, my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me before, who had never spoken with me and knew nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. You know, uh, that just did not compute with me. Well, later when I realized this was true, there are people like that, I formed a question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And some people would just say, well, Daryl, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, no, it's not just the way it is. There has to be a reason behind it. Well, it's always been that way. That was not good enough for me. I wanted to get to the nucleus of it. So this episode is just endlessly fascinating to me. But the 12-part season of A Slight Change of Plans also includes Tiffany Haddish, who went from foster care to an Emmy award-winning comedian, Casey Musgraves, who talks about her psychedelic experiences, which changed her perspectives on art, a 16-year-old and a teacher who survived the Sandy Hook shootings, who talk about how they continue to process change, a janitor who accidentally invented flaming Hot Cheetos, and Daryl Davis, who convinced hundreds of KKK members to lead the Klan. But there's also an episode with an extremely famous person whose show explores a very specific change that Maya asked me not to give away, but here is some audio from that episode. It is a constant balancing act. It's everything from how you dress and you know, what your hairstyle is to how loudly you speak or how loudly you laugh or, you know, who you are seen with or, I mean, it's just a constant judgment. Hillary Rodham Clinton's had a complicated relationship with the public. It started in the 1970s when she challenged the cookie cutter role laid out for her as First Lady of Arkansas. The thought occurs to me that you really don't fit the image that we have created <clears throat> for the governor's wife in Arkansas. You're not a native. Um, you've been educated in liberal Eastern universities. You're less than 40. You don't have any children. You don't use your husband's name. You practice law. Does it concern you that maybe other people feel that you don't fit the image that we have created for the governor's wife in Arkansas? No, um, that doesn't bother me. Um, and I hope that it doesn't bother uh, very many people. But it did bother many people. Hillary being Hillary made people uncomfortable. 
And so, one by one, her critics started asking her to change herself. Despite all her extraordinary accomplishments, including senator, secretary of state, first woman to be nominated for president by a major political party, and I mean she even won the popular vote in the 2016 election, despite all of that, people kept at it. They wanted Hillary to be different, for her to change. And she was willing to change, just never in the way that people had hoped. It's a great podcast. I loved every episode. And Maya is a great host, in addition to being one of those people who has achieved so much in life that attempting to introduce her via her accomplishments is actually kind of difficult. So after the break, you'll hear all of those accomplishments, her thoughts on how minds change and how to change minds, and details from behind the scenes of her new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. All of that after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. 
So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No. You get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and this is our interview with Maya Shankar, the host of A Slight Change of Plans. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm good. It's great to meet you. Hey, congrats on your your webby thing. I heard <laughs> on your podcast. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. That was 
Uh, I don't even know where to start congratulating you exactly. Uh, <laughs> your entire life is a series of things that I feel like, hey, amazing job on all the things you've done every time you've done a thing. So, uh, <laughs> Well, you don't know what the denominator is. There are lots of failed attempts. You're just focusing on the successful ones. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Uh, no one. I did want to be like a Bollywood backup dancer for a while as a kid. That was oh. a thing. Um, I wanted to be a violinist. Is that yeah? That's perfect. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Um, Jimmy's my like tech man. Even he's actually my husband. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> In you this get... COVID situation, thank you so much, Jimmy. Get the most out of the husband, is my opinion. Uh, exactly. Okay, give me one second. I'm just going to close the door so we can start. Hold on. Sure, sure, sure. Oh yeah. Then I found out that um, Taylor Swift had backup violinists, and so that was the thing that I wanted to do. It's just, it's been a I, I understand. I can, I can commiserate here. I, uh, I, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. That's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, really? As a kid. That's so fun. And, uh, I did not know how to do that and had nobody in my family that could tell me how to do that because I grew up in rural Mississippi and, uh, but I did eventually do a live version of my podcast in New York city at the bell house. And I was, uh, and afterward I went over to the to the Saturday Live studios. And I had this sort of like feeling of, I did kind of get up here, like on my own terms. Yeah, yeah, I think you've been, <laughs> yeah, you've been, uh, that, that's a good approximation. And obviously you've been wildly successful, so you can feel great. <laughs> that's right. And you're, and you're, I mean, come on. Like I was looking through your, uh, the bio they sent over. I've got it over here. And um, I was just like, oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. Oh yeah. And like, and I know a lot of these names and a lot of these things, cause you have, you're in the same, uh, nerd culture that I'm in as far as uh, uh, <laughs> cognitive science is concerned. I want to tell you, start off by telling you that I, what you're doing massively overlaps, and I just tweeted this, massively overlaps with what I've been doing for the last five years. I've been, uh, right, I've been, I spent the last five years writing a book about how people change their minds, uh, about how people do and do not change their minds, and then also persuasion, the psychology, mm. the, all, all the science I could dig up about persuasion, and then, um, and then social change, how things kind of lead up to social change. And in so doing, um, I've uh, spent a lot of time with activists who have different persuasive techniques. I've spent a lot of time with former cult members, former conspirator conspiratorial uh, thinkers. Um, I just most recently interviewed Megan Phelps uh, Roper. I also spent a whole weekend at Westboro Baptist Church. So I did a lot of embedded journalism for it. And um, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, was, I interviewed her for my podcast. And she was saying, uh, when I looked you up, I was like, oh my gosh, she was just on David. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're clearly in the same world. You, yeah. I listened to a couple, I listened to a lot of the material they sent over and I was like, oh yeah, you just, you both, we were in the same place thinking something very similar. So I, I feel mm. really great about that. Like, I don't know that makes me feel really good. <laughs> so, the, uh, and I love that you, I love this, the concept for the show. Uh, I listened, I immediately listened to Daryl Davis's episode. I'm obsessed with Daryl Davis and I've, I've reached out to him many times and he's many times he said, I am too busy to talk to you. So uh, uh, hopefully one day I'll get a chance to chat with him as well. So that must've been amazing. What did you think of Daryl Davis? Yeah, Dar I mean, I, I could not be a bigger fan of his. Um, he's so thoughtful in the way that he approaches mindset change. And 
what's so wonderful about hearing his story unfold. And, and of course, you know, he's, he's a musician and I also feel like his voice is like audible chocolate. <laughs> like anything he says <laughs> is beautiful sounding. He's a, such a gifted storyteller and you just feel entranced the minute he starts telling a story. Um, but, but in terms of content, I think what's so wonderful about his story is that it's corroborated by the science, right? The tactics mm -hmm. that he uses um, are validated by a lot of the research on motivational interviewing mm. and effective strategies for trying to get people to change their minds. So making sure that you show genuine curiosity, trying to hold someone's values as fixed, but uh, challenging um, maybe the consistency within an argument, um, increasing your, your question to statement ratio. And it's like, he did all that stuff before it was even a thing. So, you know, Daryl... Daryl knew this stuff was cool even before it was cool. Hey, oh, <laughs> in our in our field. First of all, I can feel that feeling you get when you're obsessed with something and it starts to bubble to the surface. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to talk about all of this with you now. Uh, if you're okay, like, I I, I promise we're going to talk about the show and about you. But before we get into it, I want to like nerd out for a second on this very on just the psychology, the science, the social science, the neuroscience, the everything science of persuasion, which I am absolutely deeply obsessed with now and have been for years. Um, the thing I've found so amazing about, I've spent time with people who are in street epistemology, deep canvassing, um, some motivational interviewing people, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, something new, smart politics, uh, even people who just go straight to Socratic method and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. And Daryl, looking at listening to the episode with Daryl Davis on your show, I was sitting there like, yep. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, and the, <laughs> it's, it, as, I'm wondering if you're seeing something similar. It feels to me like a, I'll, it's like when, um, in scientists independently discover, like before there was a lot of crosstalk between scientific communities, independently discovering like, uh, something akin to like, uh, an antibiotic or, or a, uh, mm. or, or, or even somebody on one side of the planet was trying to invent the airplane and somebody on the other side of the planet was doing the same thing. And they, pretty much figured out, well, this is how airplanes would work if, they go, if they're going to get off the ground. Uh, or um, even things like the models like natural selection and uh, uh, were, were independently being uncovered, discovered, and made sense of and taxonified uh, because science, because the truth is the truth, right? And brains work the way brains work. Mm -hmm. And if you discover what works through a persuasive technique, it's going to work with any kind of brain because what works works because brains work a certain way. And I find that amazing when you mentioned that, Oh, this seems a lot like motivational interviewing. I was having that same experience every time I interviewed people and felt like, wow, like it, these people all working on different causes and with different motivations all kind of stumble into what does and doesn't work. But if you, if you try hard enough, have you seen something similar? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, certainly with, my interview with Megan Phelps Roper, we start, we talk about concepts like moral reframing, where you assume that the person's belief system is fixed and you try and figure out ways that you can inform their thinking uh, by not questioning their fundamental belief system, um, but actually just trying to engage with it and maybe find some flaws or inconsistencies in their mm -hmm. thinking. With Daryl specifically, I mean, he took a different kind of tactic. And um, uh, what I found so powerful is that he he sort of intuitively understood and understands that we don't just form our beliefs from facts. We form our beliefs partly based on our group identities and the values that that group has. Um, and this is 
amazing work done by Dan Kahan um, and others on cultural cognition, but it's the idea that, you know, people can disagree strongly, even on empirical matters. And it's tempting to think that in order to persuade people of something, we just need to give them more facts, right? We just need to give them more information. Mm -hmm. If we can just give them more information, we can solve the problem. Um, But I think so many of us, and David, I'm sure you've come across this so often in your work, so many of us realize that's just not the case. (laughs) We throw information at that relative across from us at Thanksgiving dinner, and they seem completely unmoved. (laughs) Um, And so I think that what that shows us is that these small behaviors that people engage in every day, right? For example, the decision of whether or not to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. actually carries profound significance for that person in terms of their group membership and identity, right? Someone like me is is easy to say, you know, it, it's just a piece of cloth, like wear the <laughs> damn mask. It's going to keep you safe. But there are communities where if you wear that mask, you are potentially threatening your tribal membership, right? Mm-hmm. You're making a strong statement that you no longer av- align with the values of your group. And um, I think that this research is so foundational because it shows us that maybe our our instincts lead us to want to use this give people more data and more evidence uh, argument uh, or or technique, right, when it comes to changing people's minds. Mm -hmm. But that might not be the solution. And so what's what's profound about Daryl's story is that he really begins with relationship building trying to build friendships with people, trying to find commonalities in spaces where he knows there are commonalities. Like, oh, you like my jazz music? I like jazz music. Mm. Let's talk about that. Or, oh, your grandfather was in the clan and that's why you were, quote, born into the clan. Okay, let me talk about my family history and what I was born into. Right? He tries to find these sorts of um, commonalities that unite them as humans first. And um, I think that I think that speaks to this research, uh, again, showing that our our beliefs are based on so many other factors other than simply the empirics behind it. Yeah, yeah. I, I the, um, the, and, and, and Kahan, I've, I've, I've talked to Kahan many, many times. He was on the show. We did a show about tribal psychology, and then we did another one about um, masks and anti-maskers, and he was, uh, you know, crucial to explaining uh, badges of of loyalty and shame, as he as he puts it in in the Yale uh, cultural cognition research, and um, and we've talked a lot about information deficit model, which is what you're talking about. The uh, I, I I am continuously validating myself to you because I'm uh, I consider you such a titan of uh, of this world, uh, and I'm just happy to feel like oh yay as a journalist, like I found the stuff that's really there because <laughs> you know like oh that's absolutely I'm so happy I'm just very happy to because I started out going. I have no idea where to even begin. None of this, it doesn't, it seems like uh, some sort of dark arts that I uh, can't fully wrap my yeah, head and, around. And I'd love to know how you got interested in this space in the first place. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, tell- for me, it was a pretty natural path, right? Because I did a PhD and then I did a postdoc in cognitive science and neuroscience. And I know your path was slightly more unusual and I'm so interested. It was more unusual. More. Yeah, I was doing... As a pop psychology book writer, I had done a lot of stuff about biases and fallacies, but I had moved kind of into talking about conspiratorial thinking and had found a lot of interesting people in that world. Um, but that wasn't the idea behind the book. The idea behind the book was I had just saw a a, pu- a poll that said um, 61% of Americans used to be uh, opposed to uh, same-sex marriage. And then... Uh, Within uh, now, sixty-one percent of people are in favor, and so if you mm. go back in time, uh, just a decade, 
I was astonished to think that the majority of the country was opposed. And then you, if you talk to those exact same people today, the majority of the country is in favor. And I wanted to understand, like psychologically, like scientifically, how could an entire country change its mind about something that they were arguing about at the same level as wedge issues are argued about today? And I imagine taking someone in a time machine back 10 years and having them meet themselves and what I would imagine the two people arguing with, with one another themselves the same way they argue today. And I just wanted to understand that. Um, the particularly what was amazing about it was the, if you watch it on a, on a, like a time lapse, the, the, the change in public opinion was happened almost, it, it looks like it happened over the course of like a year, mm. like, like the major shift when, when, when the majority flipped. And it just seems so fast. I just wanted to understand how, how could it happen quickly? What is the nature of a very rapid social change? And that was the entry point into it. But when I- I love that. It was so cool. So, But when I started interviewing people in political science first, a lot of them were like, yeah, we know this is the fastest recording recorded shift of public opinion, but it's not unusual though. It's much mm -hmm. like um, punctuated equilibrium in that- uh, opinion shifts often work this way, the long periods of stasis, then a very sudden shift of opinion. And you need, we can't tell you about what happens in brains. We can just tell you about what happens sociologically. And then, so I went to, to belief researchers who were just mysterious. They would say like, yeah, we don't really understand this at a, at a deep enough level to, to get to answer your questions. And I was just started, to, I started to panic because I'd already <laughs> sold the book idea. <laughs> I'd already sold, I'd already been given permission to go write this thing. And I didn't want to tell my editors, yeah, I think this might be such, so cutting edge that maybe I don't know yet. So I instead shifted gears to, I want to go talk to people. And this is exactly where you're show like overlaps perfectly. I was like, maybe if I just talk to people who've changed their minds in drastic ways, I could then take that back to scientists and they could start to identify bits and pieces of it from the literature. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's just, it's just getting me thinking. Um, you know, your earlier question about, you know, Maya, what have you seen unfold when it comes to interviews and, and, and the intersections with the science? In many ways, I'm, I'm having the flip experience of yours, which is, so I was, you know, heavily steeped in, in the science of decision making and how we form our attitudes and beliefs about the world and um, how we come to think what we think. And when I was actually in the Obama White House, that's when I realized the power of storytelling mm. and how much insight could be gleaned from asking people directly about their experiences. So I remember I was doing work in Flint, Michigan after the lead and water crisis. And going into that crisis, uh, my understanding was that my behavioral science team was going to be helping to get, you know, clean water safety information out to the community. And after spending time on the ground talking with folks in Flint, I realized that this water crisis was a symptom of decades of racism and disenfranchisement and people of color in the community not feeling like they had a voice mm -hmm. in their local government. And that completely changed the way that I thought about the problem itself, right? Mm. I came in thinking this is about water. And then all of a sudden I realized, no, this is about power and who power belongs to within mm -hmm. this community. And um, along similar lines, you know, when I was working on trying to build uh, reentry guides for formerly incarcerated people who were reentering 
you know, society, when I actually got to talk to those folks and understand what that transition was like, they revealed to me um, so many of the psychic barriers that can exist during that transition that don't exist in a science textbook anywhere. So a large part of my motivation for creating A Slight Change of Plans, which is my new podcast, is um, there's no science textbook out there on how it is that people ought to navigate big, profound changes in their life, right. right? We understand the science around smaller changes like habit formation and, you know, how we can go to the gym more regularly or how can how we can remember to get our flu shots or whatnot. But what about these big seismic changes that happen in our lives? How do we how do we think about the psychology behind those and how to navigate them? And um, I thought to myself, I think the answers or at least clues about what scientists maybe should study lie in people's stories right yeah. there. And so in hearing Tiffany Haddish's story and Hillary Clinton's story and Daryl Davis's story and Megan Phelps Roper's story, I'm learning so much about the contours of change in life that I just never had thought about before. And um, it's teaching me so much. Uh, and so, yeah, I just, I feel so um, passionate about the types of insights we can glean just by listening to others who have, you know, lived on this earth along with us. I'm so, this is my same experience. Like I've now become more passionate about this than anything I've ever been into the book. And it was through the same thing. Like for me, it was, it was, uh, talking to like former nine 11 truthers, also, uh, people within the Megan Phelps family, uh, former Moonies, uh, people who used to be anti-vaxxers, all that sort of thing. Uh, uh, and their stories, you start to, to notice things within them that all play back to the, the, that big lesson of like, yeah, you can't start with facts or you can't start with conclusions. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have to work backwards through the processing chain and you often find that for me, it was luckily there was an overlap to things like the introspection illusion where you no, you know, people very readily can ex feel like they can explain the antecedents of their thoughts, feelings, behaviors to you and to themselves. Uh, but it not, might not actually be the true antecedents, which is something that we you can in therapy. That's like the whole point. Like, why? Where is this all coming from? Or how can I like uh, deal with my own motivations and drives and understand them more deeply? I never had considered that in persuasion, because like yourself or like most people, it feels like. When, when something feels obvious to you, it feels like it should be obvious to everyone else, though you're unaware of the, of the attitudes and motivations that are causing that to seem obvious to you. <laughs> so, and so it becomes this terrible uh, battle of, uh, what, of obviousness and naive realism. Um, and it's, if you are not aware of this, you don't metacognate at the level that allows you to have the empathy that's required for this sort of exchange, which was what blows my mind about Daryl Davis. Like, how he was able to just have this immense empathetic response to people who, if they could get away with it, would probably nothing him, kill him, leave him for dead, beat him, uh, you know, to a pulp, uh, and have devoted their lives to an identity of "I hate you" and people like you. Uh, and he engaged with them in a curious, empathetic manner, and it unfolded from there almost without him even having to. Um, he didn't need to understand it at a deep level at first. It was the rapport building and uh, human social primate stuff took over after that. Is it? Yeah, I think he's a natural born psychologist. Uh, and the reason I say that is the more that I learn about the human mind and the way in which we come to develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world, uh, the more empathy I feel towards just about everybody um, on this planet. 
And I think, I think it is, yeah, it's like, if you want to have folks feel more empathy for people who disagree with them or have, you know, what you might consider just totally insane views, just take a, take a class on psychology um, and it, or cognitive science, and it will really deepen your appreciation for why they may have uh, come to those views, however reprehensible they are, right? I'm not, um, the, the views themselves are vile and disgusting and horrible, but it, it allows you to see that there can be a kind of redemption um, mm-hmm. and a space for change because the psychology piece helps you understand why they de- may have developed those beliefs in the first place. And the minute you understand why they may have developed those beliefs in the first place, you feel that there can be an opening, like a crack, right? That the, the doors open just a bit mm-hmm. and you can sneak in and try to, you know, reverse engineer, try to unpack it um, and, and get them to a different place. And you can't help but point it toward yourself. Like as uh, you'll start, at least for me personally, it was like, oh, I wonder what things I think, feel, and believe that are from the same sort of chain. And now you wish to deeply introspect in a way that you've never had before. That's the great gift of it. Like if you, if you actually care about meeting someone and then moving into like how they came to where they're at and seeing them as a, as not just as a, as poetically and inhumanistically as a, as a, you know, a, an essential manifestation of all the uh, outcomes of the universe unfolding mm-hmm. itself, but also then as a as a big bag of molecules and, and <laughs> atoms, and then as a, yeah. as the lineage of uh, you know the social primate lineage, like you start to see people on this like four dimensional way, and it allows you to see yourself in that way too. And I feel like I never expected that to come out of looking at change and then how to encourage change. And I feel like it made, Mm -hmm. changed me. Did you feel this? Yeah, it definitely changed me. Um, And I mean, it has changed me, right? I I don't remember what it's like to not study the mind because I've been (laughs) studying the mind since I was, uh, you know, almost like a senior in high school, I guess, because the summer before college is when I picked up my first book on cognitive science. Um, So it's completely shaped my, my worldviews. but yeah, it changes. It's changed me. It's changed my approach when it comes to in, engaging with people that I disagree with. Um, you know, one thing this conversation is making me think of when it comes to Daryl Davis is that I think one of his superpowers was it, almost an accidental superpower for mm-hmm. him was that he didn't approach these early conversations with clan members with the goal to change their minds. Mm-hmm. And I think when you go in with a really strong goal to try to change someone's mind, the language you use, the way that makes them feel, it can put up all their defenses. They can start doubling down on their existing views. Mm -hmm. Um, They can feel like their personal agency is being threatened and you're trying to impose views on them. But because Daryl was trying to get these clan members to simply help him understand this question he had been asking his whole life, which is, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? I think it really his conversations really started off as, as dialogue, as back Mm -hmm. and forth, right? Where there was potentially curiosity on both sides. And then what he said is he found after a couple of these early exchanges and, and, and relationships formed, slowly people started to change their minds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, I just think that's interesting. I don't think that works for everyone, right? Like some of us really do need to go into the conversation and say, okay, I really need you to change your mind about COVID (laughs) because I'm worried that you might actually get this horrible illness and um, have terrible consequences. Uh, But that did say something to me about 
you know, we, we, you and I are aware of these motivational interviewing techniques, right? And it's, you know, show genuine curiosity. Well, it's hard to feign genuine curiosity mm-hmm. if you actually aren't curious and you're actually just trying to change their minds. So I think Daryl's superpower was that he was genuinely curious because his goal was actually to write a book on the Klan, to be the first Black author to write a book about the Klan from mm-hmm. his perspective. And uh, that might have been the thing that unlocked true mindset change. Yeah, you, I, I've in other interviews where people have asked about all that, I, I I come back to often like you you can't actually fake this. Like if you're fake, it's it's either you're genuinely curious or you're not. If you have this sort of uh, mustache twirly, I'm going to change your mind <laughs> sensibility. Like it just won't work. You just can't do it. I mean, you might could sell somebody a used car, but you're not going to get them to fundamentally examine the mysteries of how they came to feel the way they feel and possibly update their priors in that regard. You have to actually mm-hmm. be curious. You have to actually want to. Uh, someone told me it's like solving a mystery together and the mystery is on both sides. Like how, why do I feel this way? Why do you feel this way? Why do I even want to change your mind? Why are you mm. resistant to it? Like these are the mysteries we're trying to f- solve, which is is separate from the actual issue. It almost makes the conclusions irrelevant in a way because we're trying to figure out how do I reach my conclusions? What What causes my processing to conclude and feel satisfied and certain? And that becomes this, for me, it was this whole world of, of things that I was completely ignorant about that were driving my day-to-day existence and I was unaware of it completely. It was in some sort mm-hmm. of dark space. And that's I find that, that unlocking that unlocks a whole new way of being a person. And I um, I don't know. I'm just grateful for this whole science. I I, uh, I, I could nerd it about this forever. But first, uh, I didn't even ask you to introduce yourself, which feels really weird. Um, so who are you exactly? It's just for people who've never heard of you in their entire lives. <laughs> sure. I'm Maya Shankar. Um I'm a cognitive scientist by training, and uh, I would say I'm a practitioner of cognitive science in that I use insights from human behavior um, and apply them to try to inspire real-world impact. Um, So, you know, worked at the Obama White House, at the United Nations, um, and I... Was a and now I'm I'm building this podcast uh, called The Slight Change of Plans and it is about uh, how it, how it is that people navigate pretty extraordinary changes in their lives. I uh, you were uh, a almost a professional violinist though you you went to Juilliard. Uh, uh, what how come you're not playing violin somewhere professionally right now and you're doing this? Yeah, so I. When I was a kid, my my dream was to become a, a professional violinist. Um, I began playing the violin when I was six. And then, like you said, when I was nine, I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music's pre-college division um, and was very fortunately accept- accepted. And then that began um, weekly trips from Connecticut to New York uh, with my mom. We'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning, drive to New York, and I'd probably engage in 10 hours of classes over the course of the day, which shows you just how passionate I was, mm-hmm. right? Because I was such a little kid. Um, but I just loved the violin. Um, and it was everything to me. It was so foundational to to my identity. And um, things really picked up when I was in high school. And Itzhak Perlman, um, who is, you know, probably the greatest violinist uh, in present day, he asked me to be his private violin student. Um, which was an incredible oh <laughs> honor and and kind of showed me, oh, well, you know, maybe I could do this thing, right? And it's such a competitive space and you're always feeling insecure about whether you have what it takes. But I felt like his vote of confidence uh, made me feel like I really could become a violinist. Yeah. Um, and then when I was uh, 15, I uh, I was at his summer music camp 
And I, I tore tendons in my hand, which ended up ending my career essentially overnight. Um, and so I, I had to give up my dreams of being a violinist and, and try to find other things to explore. Well, you did. I mean, your your CV is one of those that makes make either it inspires you or it makes you want to go walk in the wood, go into the woods and build a cabin and never come back. The, the, <laughs> it's not only do we have it's very kind of you to say. I, I don't agree, but thank okay. You. Well, fine. <laughs> that's a personal statement. That's me. That's David McCready talking. I because you have Juilliard. It's like Perlman, uh, and then you go. You're at Yale and Rhodes, a Rhodes Scholarship, PhD, Oxford, Stanford. Uh, it's it's just all over the place, all the good stuff. Uh, and also your, um, your friends with, uh, uh, Lori Santos. I love Lori Santos. She oh, was, she was yeah. like the third guest on the show and she's been on the show several times. And we did a most recently did something about her, her podcast, the happiness, uh, lab. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but you, uh, you worked in, in her monkey lab. I did. <laughs> that, yes. Tell Lori me a little bit about my... that. Yeah, Lori was my freshman year advisor uh, and has become a, a lifelong mentor and friend for me. But basically what happened is, as I mentioned, I lost the ability to play violin right, right as I was heading to college. And um, I discovered a book on cognitive science. It was all about how the mind processes language. Mm. And I just remember being captivated. Um, it was called The Language Instinct. And it was about the brain's remarkable architecture that allows us to more or less effortlessly develop language in the early years of our lives um, and be able to communicate in these very sophisticated ways. And I marveled at this because I'd always taken my ability to speak and comprehend language for granted, Mm -hmm. um, as I think many people who have language abilities do. Um, And then you realize that it is the result of really sophisticated cognitive processing. So I remember thinking, wow, and that's what underlies language. I can only imagine what underlies the human ability to do complex mathematics or, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't do complex math, but my dad is a theoretical physicist, so he oh, can. Okay. <laughs> uh, so what, what's in his brain? Uh, and, you know, what's involved in really complex decision-making or falling in love or mm. changing your mind? Like, I just became captivated um, by by the brain. I was, I was in awe of it. And I didn't know what, kind of major would exist for this, right? It wasn't quite psychology, right? It was cognitive science. Um, And fortunately for me, Yale offered in a cognitive science interdisciplinary program at the time. It was one of the first schools. So you take classes in neuroscience, computer science, linguistics, psychology, anthropology, biology. um, And you ask a central question about the mind um, and you try to attack it from multiple disciplines, right? Mm -hmm. You try to ask that question using all these different tools. So I come into Yale and Lori's one of the leaders of this program. And I'm very intimidated uh, Mm -hmm. by it because it's admissions only. (laughs) So I remember (laughs) having serious imposter syndrome. And um, I learned that she had this, this monkey lab. And I show up on day one, the room is packed, David. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Uh, And I'm the lowly freshman, right, in the back of the room being like, hi, look at me. You know, there's all these upperclassmen who are eager to join the monkey lab before their their time at Yale is over. And there was an application process. 
And I sold my soul to her on this application <laughs> process. I was like, Lori, you can have my firstborn child. You can <laughs> uh, you can have anything you want. Um, I, I won't take any other classes. I'll just commit myself to the monkey lab. Just please let me in. And I was the only freshman that she led in that year. And I'm so grateful to her because it completely changed my life to actually get exposure to what it meant to do cognitive science research in the world, right? To actually run experiments on monkeys um, and try to ask these really fascinating questions about, um, about our minds and, and non-human primate minds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember being interested in, you'll hopefully find this interesting as someone I'm, who's interested in this I'm, space, but yes, I will. <laughs> I, as someone who is so fascinated by language, the fact that our non-human primate relatives don't have language can teach us something interesting about the kinds of cognition that rank, that language relies on, right? So um, I studied essentialism. So this idea that, you know, certain entities in the world have this fundamental essence to them that in our minds can remain immutable. And mm-hmm. so one of the questions I wanted to know was, are, do monkeys have essentialism? Or is essentialism something that relies on our ability to give names to the objects in our world mm. and that those names give permanence to things? And so we just got to run all sorts of really fascinating Oh, don't stop uh, there. Studies. What did you find out? So, well, there, yeah, monkeys have essentialist qualities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so it might not actually rely on language after all. Uh, they also tend to um, see the... Uh, to, to believe that there is an essence of an object that even if you change superficial traits externally on that object, persist. Oh, wow. I, I love everything out of that lab. The token systems and the, the way that they, they commit biases. Uh, they commit to biases and do certain weird things that you find all throughout behavioral economics to see that. Yeah, they, to- they bear out all, like they, uh, they're consistent with basically all the Kahneman and Tversky research, which is... Uh, really something. I love that because it means it's so fundamental to our, you know, our lineage as a primate that, that, that it's come, that makes me feel nice in some way to like, it, it gives me great comfort, uh, to know that these things are old evolutionarily speaking, potentially, potentially it's, 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 uh, such a cool lab. And now that I know about essentialism, I'm going to go look that up. I will ask you if you have papers on this, cause I want to read them. Cause that sounds yes, amazing. Yes, we do have, pap- we do have papers on it. So Mon- monkey I'll essentialism, send those to you after. <laughs> monkey essentialism is a great phrase and i want <laughs> <laughs> i want I, I must i want to put that on a t-shirt i love it uh the the um also the fact that you had imposter syndrome because like i haven't even we're not even halfway through how insane your life is the you uh you worked with sesame street i want you to know that for me personally on your uh list of accomplishments this one bumps right to the top uh of course cause, it cause, should because i grew up on, i grew also grew up on sesame street i was trapped in a trailer in the woods in South Mississippi and Sesame street was a, not only, you know, it's like, Hey, take a look at New York. Hey, here are the people that, uh, think and feel like you, it is okay to learn. They're, uh, Spanish. Like my first introduction to Spanish was Sesame street. What was your, what was your experience with Sesame street and what did you end up doing with them? Okay. So I'm obsessed with Sesame Mm -hmm, street. mm -hmm. Um, so I was obsessed as a child, but the reason I'm particularly obsessed with Sesame street is that they are this powerful instrument that exists all over the world. So there's Sesame, a lot of people don't know this, there's Sesame Streets all over the world in different countries, and they've been adapted to the social and political climates of those countries. It is an incredible tool for getting young children to change their minds in positive ways. Um, So I 
happened to work on the Indian version of the show when I was at Sesame Street. But let me just give you a couple examples of how Sesame has so masterfully uh, helped to build a better world through this really creative and cute show that families invite into their homes. So in the South African version, uh, the main Muppet is a little girl Muppet and she's HIV positive. And in the show, she's regularly taking her medication, uh, trying to decrease the stigma around being HIV positive mm. um, and, and having uh, to comply with a lot of these, you know, pretty taxing medication regimens. Uh, in India, one of the main Muppets is named Chumpkey. She's a little girl. And um, and maybe all this is outdated, by the way. Maybe there's like, you know, next level Muppets now. It's been a while <laughs> since I worked on the show. But uh, this main character, Chumpkey, is, is wearing a backpack. And she's constantly wearing uh, this backpack uh, to show her commitment to going to school every day. Because she's a girl, but she loves reading and she loves math. And she's really committed to her education. And... I'm just so moved by the way in which Sesame Workshop has um, found a way, again, to to change people's minds uh, and to get them thinking differently uh, in in ways that might be different, again, from what they're taught in school or what they're seeing on the news or what they're seeing on other parts of their their TV. And I guess in some ways it mirrors the Daryl Davis approach, which is, Mm. again, people are inviting this content into their homes, right? It's enriching. It teaches them how to read and, and, and about basic math and whatnot. And um, yeah, I just, I, I feel so passionately about this organization's mission, as you can tell. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned the, the Daryl Davis thing. I, two of the scientists I've spent the most time with, uh, David Brockman and Josh Calla, who research uh, Deep Canvassing, the activist organization that started in um, Los Angeles at the LA uh, LGBT Center. They, sort of created this persuasive technique where they would go door to door. They made a lot of headlines over the years because people have been trying to figure it out and like study it because they had no, they had no scientific background in their work. They just Mm. were canvassers who had had, they stumbled into a unique concept, which was what if we just knocked on the door and asked people, Hey, why do you feel this way? (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. and that they recorded their conversations, they AB tested them and, and then after 12,000 of these, <clears throat> after 12,000 of these conversations and sticking with what worked and then uh, throwing away what didn't, they sort of zeroed in on a persuasive technique that they train people in. And um, then uh, the scientists who studied them found that it was very effective uh, after they went through a, a, um, a debacle in which one of the, sci- the, one of the first people who studied them um, – created fraudulent research by copy pasting data from an old study. But once they got through that, they, and they had people actually study them, they found it was very effective. And then their most recent line of research, because this was continues to be used around the world. Um, they found what seemed to be the, the key ingredient. They were trying to look for the active ingredient as if they were trying to understand some chemical that was uh, the way they put it to me was like trying to understand how aspirin works. You know, you have this tree bark thing that, is effective at reducing pain, but we don't know what's actually happening in the uh, bodies of the people who are taking it. So they want to be able to replicate it. So they want to figure out what's the active ingredient. And they, they keep coming back to, they call it non-judgmental listening. They just call it empathetic, open, non-judgmental listening. And they're trying to like create a scientific term for it, but that's what they've, the mouthy word for it right now. Um, And a lot of it is just once you build rapport, allowing a person to tell their story and be heard and listen and simply listening to it. Oftentimes a person, when they have to articulate 
what has before been ineffable to them. And they have to actually explore the actual reasons and justifications behind whatever they, they feel might be their position or what is it that seems to be causing them to have this emotional response in the presence of this novel information or what seems to be novel. It's almost like it, you don't have to do anything. I think Daryl Davis mentioned this, like it's in not trying to change their mind, just trying to understand it. The person starts to do whatever brains do when they think about this kind of stuff and they start to change themselves right there in the moment. And if they feel safe, you can nurture and curate that experience. Does that seem like something you've seen as well? Yeah, I think the more that you can recruit people's agency uh, and and get them to change their own minds about something, the more durable that mindset changes and the more generally committed they are to that mindset change. And so I think keeping the space open, like you said, making it a safe space, um, I think this is why they find that that converts are so powerful uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to changing people's minds. Like former extremists are extremely effective at getting uh, potentially current extreme extremists to change their minds. And that's mm-hmm. because they shared at some point in time a very similar identity. And so it's safe for the current extremists to go down this path with the, the former one and understand how it is they got from point A to B um, in, in a way that feels, um, accessible and, and resonates with them. Um, so yeah, I mean, another, another quote from Daryl that I think is so powerful is he says, you know, I don't like to say that I convince people to leave the clan. I like to think that I inspired them <laughs> to recognize within themselves that, that they wanted to leave. They changed their own minds. You know, I didn't change their minds yet. I'm going to come back to this. I, I, I don't want to leave this on the table. After all the things you've done, you, then you, you end up in the White House uh, doing incredible work, changing the world. How did you end up in the White House and what did you do there? Yeah, so I was doing my postdoc at the time in cognitive neuroscience. And I remember I was in this um, windowless fMRI lab. <laughs> it's probably my fourth hour scanning people's brains. <laughs> and this guy comes in and he goes in the scanner. And within moments, right, I'm peering into this dude's brain. And I'm thinking, hmm, given my personality, <laughs> I feel like the order of operations is a little bit off here. Like, I don't know if this guy has kids or what his favorite ice cream flavor is or what his job is. And those are the kinds of things that I would love to know uh, in a normal environment. So I kind of realized that the, at least the fMRI part of my (laughs) job was not meant for me. I really wanted to be in a more social environment in groups, getting to know people, working on teams, what have you. So I decided um, I, I probably didn't want to become an academic, like a professor somewhere. And I didn't know what would come next. And so this is where I called Lori Santos, uh, mm. as I'm, as we talked about, she's my mentor. So I usually come to her at every big juncture in my life. And I said, well, what do I do next? I don't know what a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience does if they don't become a professor. And she said, well, you know, Maya, I just heard recently about this incredible work happening in uh, the Obama White House um, under the leadership of Cass Sunstein, who mm. wrote the book Nudge and is an incredible legal scholar and also the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And basically, they were solving an important problem, which is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture offers uh, a free or reduced price lunch program to millions of kids who um, whose families can't afford lunch at school. And unfortunately, despite the fact they were offering this program, millions of kids were still going hungry every day. And Mm. so they did a a behavioral audit and they basically found out that 
the application process for, for school lunches was extremely burdensome. It required referencing multiple tax documents. You know, any mistake uh, could be met with a penalty. And if you think about the conditions, that, that's really hard, right? Imagine a single mom who's working, you know, three shifts to make ends meet, and then we're asking her to fill out this very burdensome form at exactly this particular moment in time during the year to get her kid enrolled. And then there was also a stigma associated with applying or signing your kid up for a benefits program. You know, fast forward a few years when I was at the White House, I actually spoke with a principal who said, you know, parents in my school, they work super hard and they don't like the idea of having their kids rely on the government in order to eat. And so uh, going back to this anecdote, uh, what the government did is that they used existing data they already had on these kids to automatically enroll them in the program. So now... Only proactive steps were needed if you wanted to actively unenroll your child from the program. No steps were needed if you wanted to enroll them. And as a result of this policy change, 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day. Uh, and I was so moved by this example. It was a great uh, illustration of how if we applied insights from behavioral science, right, the power of changing the default option, mm-hmm. it could be a game changer for 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 people and and set in this case set kids on a trajectory for success who might have otherwise failed. And so I thought, well, this is amazing and powerful. I want to do this, but there was no there was no job available for a mm. behavioral scientist. Uh, Cass had just left the White House, and. Um, so Lori and I chatted and I ended up sending Cass a cold email. Um, and I basically said, I'm a postdoc. I have no public policy experience. I probably published nothing of significance <laughs> that you find, <laughs> would find interesting. But I would love to work uh, at the intersection of behavioral science and policy. And I do remember, David, I wrote in the email because you were ta- talking a little bit before about imposter syndrome. I wrote, <laughs> I know I'm not cool enough to work with the likes of Obama, <laughs> But if there's an opportunity in state or local government, I would love to do that. Um, and thankfully for me, Cass ignored uh, <laughs> my, my insecurities and connected me with the president's science advisor. And within a week, I was interviewing oh, wow. uh, for a, a job that I was pitching them on, right? I was trying to ask them if they would be interested in building a new position for a behavioral scientist uh, to come in and, and work at, on translating insights from our field into public policy improvements. Yeah. And um, I remember that that conversation was was very transformative because my academic colleagues and I had been, you know, waxing poetic about the power of the insights from our field to change people's lives for a while. Um, but this was the first time in my life where I was having a conversation in which the person on the other end was telling me that we could actually make this stuff happen. So yeah. I remember I was talking about Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative and you know, I was nerding out with him. I was like, oh, we should really be using injunctive norms versus descriptive <laughs> norms. Um, and uh, he said, well, you know, I know Michelle Obama's team and we can make that happen. And um, I just remember like, it was like a lightning bolt. I was, I, I was thinking, oh my gosh, look at the power of this platform, right? And so um, fortunately for me, Obama won his reelection <laughs> a few weeks later and they were able to create this position for me. And um, that's how I joined the White House. That is so incredible. But it was all through a cold email. <laughs> the, first of all, thank you for letting, allowing me to just dive through your life in that way. I just, you're, you're an incredibly fascinating and amazing human being and you you're one of those people that makes me like think about like Star Trek, the next generation always had these, you know, these incredible people were the only people that could make it through Starfleet Academy and then get a, pos- a position on the enterprise. And you're like, you are one of those people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you watch the show and it's very aspirational. You're like, well, nobody's actually this 
capable, but it's nice to think about a world like that. But no, that's true. Like you really are one of those people. I think that's just, uh, it just blows me away. So I appreciate you letting me go through all that with you. Um, well, thanks for saying that. I mean, one lesson that I've learned that might be helpful to listeners is you're not always going to be handed an opportunity and that opportunity might not even exist. But one thing I've learned from my experience is you can always try and create it. You can oh, always wow. try and create the the job that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, if you try to build a particular kind of argument, or you know, you have the the luxury of sitting down with someone and saying, "Hey, is there any chance that you'd be willing to think about this new kind of position?" Um, and I I do feel like um, yeah, that was a great learning experience for me, which is don't wait for the job to exist; just try to make it yourself. That's that's good live advice. I, I feel you very deeply on this. Uh, <laughs> I commiserate deeply on that. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in some of these episodes. Um, let me ask about two in particular, uh, because you have incredible guests from uh, Scott Kelly, who is also amazing to me. Uh, the uh, Megan Phelps Roper, who uh, is, we, we traded macaroni and cheese recipes over, to, over text right after we talked and we made each other's macaroni and cheese. She's an amazing person. Um, You've got uh, Tiffany Haddish, who you spoke about, Hillary Clinton, uh, Casey Musgraves. These are all incredible people. I want to talk about Casey just for a second, just because this, this has a little of bit course. of psychedelics in it. Uh, if I will just cede the floor to you. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you discovered with uh, speaking to Casey Musgraves and psychedelics and how they can and how she was determined not, not to change. Yeah, Casey um, is a very inspiring person. So she's a country music singer. And it was funny because our, our interview basically took two parts. Uh, the first part was her talking about the fact that from an early age, as she was trying to break into the music industry, she was just absolutely resolute in her convictions to stay true to herself, mm-hmm. um, which is a really impressive thing if you think about it, because breaking into the music industry is so hard that you could easily imagine justifying it to yourself and saying, okay, in the short term, they want me to change these lyrics, which they're finding a little too irreverent. I'll do it now. And then I'll just break in. And as soon as I've broken in, then I'll really be true to myself. Um, And so again, you can, it's so effortless to imagine why someone would just do whatever they needed to do to get on the airwaves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But Casey just said, she said it so beautifully. Um, She was saying, you know, so then what? Now you fool people into thinking you're someone you're not, and mm. that's who they think they're signing up to listen to. And so I was so impressed that even from such a young age, she had this maturity and, and understanding that she was essentially building a social contract with her listeners. And she needed to make sure that it was absolutely authentic and um, was honest to her lived experience. And she was saying, you know, I violated a lot of country norms, right, by talking <laughs> about sex and drugs and homosexuality and whatnot. But in many ways, that is the most country thing to do because country music is all about people's stories. It's Mm -hmm. all about their lives. And Casey was saying, like, my life has been about some of those themes. And it would be inauthentic for me not to talk about them. Um, So I, she's, you know, she stood up to music uh, business critics and things like that and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not willing to change for you. It's okay if I don't sell as many mm. uh, records. It's okay if I don't hit the top charts and whatnot. And then, of course, jokes on them because she goes on to win album of the year at the Grammys for one of her most contentious albums. So, um, it, yeah, I, I was very much in awe of her story kind of flips the the pod- podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, on its head a bit, right? Mm-hmm. By uh, having it be about when a person is unwilling to change, mm-hmm. when they're just happy with who they are. 
Uh, and then in the second half of the interview, we talk about her exploring psychedelics and how it filled her, um, you know, child psychologist has said that doing an LSD trip is essentially like being a kid all mm-hmm. the time because <laughs> uh, you're filled with this childlike wonder and creativity and openness to the world. And uh, she's able to talk a bit about how that mindset informed her creative process and how it just informed her life generally. She feels like she, you know, she confronts her younger self in one of her trips, her nine-year-old self, and she just gives her this big hug and says how much she loves her. And um, she tried to have more compassion towards former versions of herself that she might've been at the time very self-critical of. Oh, that's incredible. I love that. Um, I, I, a lot of, I got very deep into the Piaget assimilation accommodation stuff and uh, the, I the I think of the, I think about that all the time when I hear positive psychedelic stories about how it returns you to a state where you have to reengage in assimilation and accommodation that you thought you were done with uh, because it mm-hmm. because it discombobulates the world to the point where you have to the brain starts looking for patterns starts trying to make sense of things and then when you finally come back in some way you come back with that meta knowledge that uh, if you know that you are doing that. You know that that's possible. You know, you're aware of the fact that accommodation takes place. It's that um, when you learn how to play a game, you don't just learn the game. You learn that games can be played. You know, you learn that mm-hmm. games have rules. Um, that's really... Yeah, I think one of the analogies she used was, and, and I know everyone has their own analogies for psychedelics, um, and actually one of the thing that's, things that's so interesting is it's really hard to use language to describe mm. what an LSD trip is like. And actually that's one of the things I asked her about in the interview, uh, which is do you feel actually that music allowed you to better convey what that experience was like? Because people will say it was so profound. It completely changed my life. And then they use, you know, all of these, like, um, they basically use like pablum, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> they, they use all these hyperbolic, uh, you know, terms to describe it. And, and then they listen to themselves report back on their trip and they're like, damn it, it felt so much more profound in the moment. Yeah. How come I'm not able to find the language to describe this? Uh, and so we do talk about whether she feels like music was actually a better vehicle for her to convey what those trips felt like. Yes. Uh, but anyway, sorry, I digress. No, don't uh, di- di- do not used- digress. That's good. Because <laughs> um, um, who was I talking to? Uh, David Eagleman said, uh, you know, language is a low bandwidth, uh, you know, a, 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 a vehicle for transmitting information. And over time, we get better at articulating the ineffable, but it doesn't really matter where it comes from. If it comes from art or philosophy or science or mathematics, like everything's mm-hmm. an attempt to pierce the the ignorant space and shed a little bit more understanding into it. But it may not be easy. We may not may not have the words or the metaphors for it that are able to contain it. And that's that, right. That and happens so he, much in psychedelic yeah. experiences. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's like Casey say, you know. When, she, when she's talking about this stuff and, and when I read about it, um, you know, obviously Michael Pollan has this incredible book about psychedelics. Mm. So reading that book, you know, it just can sound so cliche, <laughs> all the things people are saying, but it, it can be life altering, right? A, a, a terminally ill cancer patient does an LSD trip and it completely renews their relationship. Uh, it, 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 can, it can renew and or transform their relationship with the things they're most fearful of. Uh, it can, you know, for example, make them at peace with death for the first time ever because they confront death in their trip and all of a sudden they think about it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Casey was saying that it was as though she had her whole life been trotting through the woods and laying down, you know, her tracks. 
And then when she did the trip, it was as though all those tracks had been covered up. And so Mm. it was just this, you know, blank canvas in front of her. And um, she was she was exploring completely new neural paths that she had never uh, taken before. This is such a great testament to this incredible program you put together because like not only do you have this and daryl davis and all the other things we mentioned and you have someone who like looked at looked down at earth from space for a year and and changed their perspective on humanity you also have hillary clinton yeah it's an amazing episode because it took me by surprise uh so i don't want to give too much away sure sure give us a tease what's yeah i think what was so interesting to me going to interview is that i thought i was going to have a certain conversation with her about what it what she felt she lost in changing her last name. And the conversation turned out completely differently than I thought. And what I realized is that the changes that society has asked of Hillary Clinton over the last few decades have not had the impact on her that we thought they did. Mm, Okay, that's good. That's a tease. Dear dear listener, you'll have to listen to the show for this. Yeah, like I love it when I go into an interview thinking it's going to be a certain way. And then my guest totally challenges my mental model. You um, change your mind. Yeah, I changed my mind about their their own story and what their profound change was and how they thought about the changes that they made in their mm. lives. Um, and Hillary Clinton's story was, fell exactly into this bucket where I, I think, you know, you prepare questions going into an interview. And I think by question three, I was like, okay, these questions aren't relevant anymore. <laughs> uh, and I tossed it out. And we just had this beautiful conversation. Uh that, that just unfolded really naturally. Yeah. So I'm so excited for people to hear it. Yeah, me too. This is a great work. Let me, let me, uh, I, I would talk to you forever on this if I could, but we only have so much time. I want to make sure I ask this question, which is, mm-hmm. uh, and there's no right answer. This is just you, your chance to just, you know, talk, which is, what, what does that phrase even mean to you? Uh, change your mind. Like, what does that mean? What does changing your mind even mean? That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I think it can mean lots of different things depending on the context. Uh, but I, I really think it's just when you, I think the most powerful form is when you absolutely believe that something you think is true. Mm-hmm. And then one day you realize it might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, that that type of mindset change can be about anything. I mean, one of the fascinating things I've learned in in launching a slight change of plans and having conversations with my guests is how how many times they've surprised themselves and learned new things about themselves and changed their own minds as a result of a big change. So Mm -hmm. for example, I talked with a 32-year-old cancer researcher who um, was also a self-proclaimed health nut. So he has been trying to optimize his quality of life and lifespan for the last decade plus. He's a intermittent faster and he does high intensity interval training and he's a vegan and he pours turmeric on all of his food. Um, if, if it's in a life hacking book, he's done it, right? Mm-hmm. And then at 32, he gets a stage four cancer diagnosis that leads him to have to amputate his leg, get multiple surgeries, including losing a vertebrae um, and uh, you know probably six rounds of chemotherapy. And so his worst fear has come true, David. Mm. And one thing that was astonishing to him is that he found himself being more or less as happy eight months into the treatment uh, as he had been before. And he said if he had knew, sorry, if he had known that he would respond in this way psychologically, he might never have been as of this outcome in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
And that was so powerful to me because that it, it almost like it, it, it was, he was changing his mind about himself, mm -hmm. right? How he responds. And he had had a mental image of who he was before this. And then he had to massively update that understanding when he was actually confronted with his worst nightmare outcome in mm -hmm. life. Um, and then there's been other cases where people have tried to inspire what they believed would be a really positive, good change. And it had all sorts of negative consequences. So I talked with a woman named Elna who lost over 100 pounds in a very short amount of time. And it had been her dream from the time she was a little girl to become thin. And so, you know, she reaches that goal and she does become thin. And initially she feels like she's living her dream life. But then all of a sudden she starts to realize that she's become a worse person, that she's lost parts of herself, that she really treasured and valued. Like she's less um, bold and irreverent. She's more... Um, you know, self-conscious. Mm. She's a little bit less nice to people because she's able to get things that she wasn't able to get before. And so she realized, oh, wow, this, this change that I thought would be so positive didn't have the expected impact on me. I'm, I'm a less happy person now. Um, so I love it when, when changing your mind is not just about like a topic, but it's actually changing your mind about yourself mm -hmm. uh, and what you're capable of. And I've seen that come through in, in almost every interview that I've done for a slight change of plans. Well, this is, I, I love it so much. This is, uh, I, I feel like you made this show just for me and I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, David. It was the least I could do. <laughs> but I, I, I cannot wait to share it uh, with the world. And uh, Thank I, you so I, much for your support. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's I so fell good. in love with this process. So yeah, it's so good. And uh, I really appreciate what you do in the world. You're, you are one of these unalloyed goods and you've, you're creating a, a, a better world everywhere you go. And I just, uh, I have immense gratitude for your work as a human being. And I really appreciate every, your, everything you're doing, not just with this show, but whatever else you find yourself doing afterward. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And of course, the feeling is mutual. Ah, mm, yay. Uh, <laughs> so I, I would spend more time with you. I could. I know you probably have a tight schedule. Thank you so much for all of this. Uh, anything you ever need in the future whatsoever, if I can be of service to you in any <laughs> so way, nice. thank let you. me know. I, I, may, I may do that. Perfect. Thank you so much, David, for your time. It was a pleasure meeting you. Same, same, same. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maya, her website is mayashankar.com. That is M-A-Y-A-S-H-A-N-K-A-R.com. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode and any other episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. And for all the past episodes, go to Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or Omni or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, we're on Facebook. Half a million people over on Facebook that talk about the episodes. That's at Facebook.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. If you would like to support this one-person-for-now operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to Patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount will get you these episodes with no ads in them, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other things. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Please tell everyone you know about the show and check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.